Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. Uh, we're here today it's talking about The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. It has been quite a year for Jennifer Doudna. I mean, I guess it's been quite a year for all of us, but in a good way, it has been quite a year for Jennifer Doudna. She won the Nobel Prize. She got her own parking space for life at Berkeley, and she is the subject of a biography by none other than Walter Isaacson, chronicler of giants. Isaacson is known for his biographies, most recently, of Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci. He is a frequent presence on television discussing science, technology, politics, history, the media, everything. He's been an advisor to presidents, the editor of Time when that was a thing, and the CEO of CNN. He is the CEO of the Aspen Institute now, and he is here with us today to discuss his new book. Hi, Walter. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much, Laura, for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So I was wondering as I was reading this, you've written biographies of Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, Leonardo da Vinci. That's, that's some pretty intimidating stuff. So you go to Jennifer Doudna, and you'd say you'd like to write about her. Did she have any qualms? I think she was uh, shy about it. Um, she wasn't sure she wanted to become as much of a public figure, but she's very much uh, representative of the amazing advances we're making in biology now. And I explained that my Einstein book and other books dealt with the physics revolution of the first half of the 20th century. And then by doing Steve Jobs and then Ada Lovelace and the innovators, I was trying to do the digital revolution of the second half of the 20th century. And I would like to chronicle her, I told her, because both in discovering the structure of a certain types of uh, self-replicating RNA molecules, and then in parlaying that into a deep understanding of how gene editing and CRISPR worked, and then turning her attention to the coronavirus and also to the ethical issues of, you know, that come up from gene editing, all of that made her a good central character, even though the book is an ensemble act, has uh, quite a few other people in it. Yeah, it certainly does. It, it it sort of unfolds outwards from Jennifer to her colleagues and her competitors. Um, did you expect from the beginning that it would be what you call an ensemble act? Oh, yeah. Science is a team sport. And I wanted to show the uh, relationship between collaboration uh, and competition. They're both elements of this. I uh, was very inspired when I was young uh, by Horace Freeland Judson's The Eighth Day of Creation, which is a, a journey of discovery about the world of biology. And it, of course, has the competitions as well as the cooperation among labs around the world. And to me, I wanted to convey that. I have a huge respect for Fong Zhang, for example. I spent a lot of time in his lab up at the Broad Institute. And even though they're competitors, uh, that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It helps spur the science forward. I think one of the interesting things reading the book is that there's this incredible cast of characters, all brilliant people, all ingenious people. Uh, there's, there's these horse races going on for fame and glory and, and money and prizes and so on. It, it, it's a lot of the drama, but what struck me uh, was how often multiple people ended up at the same point at the same moment, in fact, uh, despite the sort of individual brilliance. 
Yeah, science often happens that way. There are very few leaps that come out of the blue. Perhaps Einstein's theory of general relativity is an example, but usually uh, the time is ripe for certain discovery, whether it's the microchip or CRISPR. And it was particularly important because so many people, starting with Francisco Mojico, and then, of course, uh, Rodolf uh, 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 Berengu and uh, the uh, people at Danisco uh, and Philippe Horvath. And then watching as so many people get involved in trying to decipher, decipher uh, the nature of CRISPR. I, I found Luciano Marafini very interesting, spent time with Eric Sondheimer. But then at a certain point, you have somebody... Uh, or a team led by Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna that's able to say, well, here's the essential biochemical components of the CRISPR system. Here's exactly how they fit together. And this is why we can engineer it with a single guide and perhaps make a gene editing tool out of it. And as you know, coming out of that, there becomes another race that's in the, you know, June or so of 2012. But for the next six months, there's another race to say, okay, can we really make it work in human cells? And that includes George Church, Fong Zhang, many people around the world, and of course, Jennifer Doudner and Martin Enoch, uh, the graduate student working with her. Well, and let me just say congratulations on getting all those names pronounced correctly, because <laughs> I, I really struggle <laughs> I, I, I left out Christoph Chalinski, who is a graduate <laughs> student of Emmanuel, out of fear that my ability to pronounce his name is a little bit harder. I'm really afraid that there are certain people in this crew that get left out regularly for just that reason. I mean, like, you would have been more famous, but everybody's afraid of saying your name wrong. <laughs> uh, but it was sort of this sense I have when I finish the book and look backwards, because in fact... You know, you can keep tracing it back and back and back, right, to the time that Francisco Mojica said, hey, what are these funny-looking repeats in this sequence of bacterial DNA, which was always going to happen when we started sequencing bacterial DNA, which came out of the Human Genome Project. So there's, a, there's an inevitableness to the, the arc of it. And going beyond that incredible moment of we can do this in all cells um, and we can, you know, turn it from, from an observation in bacterial cells into a tool or really a set of tools. There, a lot of people compare CRISPR to a Swiss army knife because it's so many tools. But um, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is finding the right uh, CRISPR associated enzymes because what was particularly cool near the uh, end of my research when the coronavirus was spreading the notion that we can use Cas12 and Cas13 and reporter molecules, uh, it really does make the whole systems of CRISPR seem like a Swiss army knife. Yeah, and so it, it keeps going on, right? Like, that's the well, thing Well, you know, if I look me. at what, uh, you know, various people, especially up at Harvard and MIT, are doing with, you know, base editing and prime editing, uh, you know, David Liu and others... Uh, it's just every few months there's a great advance in CRISPR. Uh, I that's what I was that was one of the things I was struck with that sort of unending pace of it all. Um, uh, someone I I know in the field once said in genomics we're we're trying to design the plane while we're flying it, 
And I wondered if it felt that way as a writer, like what was it like to trying to describe a system that was changing every three months? Well, the uh, thing about my reporting during the coronavirus pandemic is I was able to, uh, with their permission, lurk in the Slack channels and hang in the Zoom meetings and be part of the Microsoft Teams uh, of people at the Broad and people in Ber- and Berkeley and Jennifer's lab and in other labs. So you got to see things unfolding in real time right when a crisis was hitting, because uh, as you know full well, both Jennifer Doudna's group uh, at IGI out in the Bay Area and then the Broad and others said, okay, let's turn our attention to how we're going to use this to fight the coronavirus. And so I had already written about uh, Sherlock and uh, the uh, detection tool that Feng Zhang had come up with, and I'd already written about Mammoth uh, Technologies and Detector, uh, their tools, and I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to them because it seemed like, okay, detection technology worth a chapter or so. But then as that thing, as uh, the coronavirus pandemic spread, that became so much more important, not only the ability to detect, uh, and it'll become important in the near future, detect not only the coronavirus, but variations of it and mutations of it. But then also to say, can we use things like, I think Feng Zhang's acronym for it is CARVER, which is to do for the coronavirus in our system exactly what bacteria do when they get attacked by a virus using the CRISPR system. They uh, chop it up. And so uh, what made it particularly interesting is not only writing about it while the plane was being flown, but the plane was being flown through a true storm, which is this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say at the end, but let's talk about it now. The book, like everything else in the universe, sort of, well, on Earth, I should say, got, got hijacked in 2020 by COVID. Um, COVID took over all the labs you were looking at. It took over all the, the science that we were looking at, and it took over our, in the same way it took over our lives. And I I thought it was interesting looking at it because uh, a number of people, when they were talking about uh, health inequities and um, uh, the the differences between how people live in the society and so on, have pointed out how revealing COVID was, um, how it laid things bare. But it was also revealing about a lot of things about biotech. And in a way, uh, for me, COVID was sort of a debutante's ball for biotech. It kind of came out as... Like, look, we have these great tools that you people, the things you were just talking about, the ability to use uh, CRISPR and other tools to uh, quickly tag and then send up sort of flares, identify molecules. Um, Yeah, it became research biology's moment because everybody uh, suddenly realized that their future was in the hands of research biologists and the astonishing speed of creating new vaccines. And particularly since RNA is the hero molecule of my book, to be able to use RNA both as a guide molecule, the way it's done in CRISPR technologies and in its basic, you know, central dogma role uh, on this planet which is as a messenger RNA to build the type of proteins we might want to specify. And so all of that happening, I think, showed people uh, 
that it's amazing and joyful to understand how something works, especially when that something is ourselves. And that notion that biologists and biotechnologists were taking that knowledge and they were going to save us as they did. I mean, as we speak, suddenly coronavirus cases are going down in most of the world uh, as these uh, vaccines are rolled out. And so it connected uh, the role of molecular biology and the creation of biotech tools and the use of RNA as such a delightful molecule that can do everything from being a messenger to tell ourselves uh, which proteins we need building to being a single guide fused together the way Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna did to say, all right, we want you to target this section of the genetic material. And uh, it's so fascinating, but of course, let's have some humility. I mean, bacteria have been doing this for more than a billion years. So we're just discovering how to do it. Yeah, maybe they should have gotten the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Well, I think there's some uh, bacteria that are, it's like, um, I guess it was uh, Jack Kilby's line when he won the Nobel Prize. He said, uh, and they praised him for all the things he said in motion. He said, well, I feel like the beaver talking to the rabbit at the foot of the Hoover Dam. I didn't build it, but it's based on my idea. So uh, I, I think bacteria can say that to us. <laughs> yes, I, I think they would like to, actually. Hey, um, so I want to bring this back to Jennifer Doudna for, for, for a minute. You've written so, so often about people who are sort of archetypally geniuses, and you run an institute dedicated to supporting and nurturing intellectual leadership. Um, I remember in your book on Steve Jobs when you talked about how he said he didn't want focus groups because people didn't know what they needed until, I'm going to, I may murder this, but he, he mm-hmm. would tell them what they needed. Yeah, he said that if Henry Ford had had a focus group and asked what his customers wanted, they would have said a faster horse. <laughs> so, so this was really different, right? Like this is a different, this is, I, I feel like all of the people you're describing, Doudna and all her colleagues and competitors were more like, like, like archaeologists, like uncovering something, you know, and there were races to get there first, but. You know, an interesting thing that's, uh, I explore in this book, but also with a book I did called The Innovators that has the transistor and the microchip, and for that matter, Einstein, is sometimes we have a linear view of uh, innovation, which is that basic science leads to discoveries, leads to innovations, which leads to translate into products. But it's not really all that linear. And this is a wonderful interplay in this book between people who are doing basic curiosity-driven research, like Francisco Mojica, who is looking at archaea and then other microorganisms and bacteria, Uh, in salt ponds, you know, off the Spanish Mediterranean coast, uh, all the way to people who are having very practical needs to understand it, such as the two researchers at Danisco, you know, Horvath and Barangu. Um, And there's sort of an interplay between those who are trying to create tools we can use and those who are curiosity-driven for basic research. And Jennifer Doudna, like uh, Feng Zhang and others, 
uh, are able to be comfortable in all camps. I mean, they're basically driven by curiosity and basic research. And yet the minute they discover well, Jennifer and Emmanuel Charpentier discover how you can do a engineered uh, CRISPR-Cas9 system to cut uh, DNA at a targeted place. They say, wow, we can turn that into tools. We can turn it into a detection technology. We can turn it into a therapeutics. And now we're turning it on the coronavirus. So that, And they form companies to do so. So I try to show the interplay between curiosity-driven basic research and translational medicine. I could see that in the in the book. Um, it's it's such a huge, sprawling topic, but also that theme runs through it uh, very strongly. I really admire Jennifer Dowden quite a lot for what she achieved, even in the way I was sort of like she was the person in that spot, right? She was the RNA expert, and this came during her moment. So maybe less for the thing that you'd think that I would admire her for. Like, that's amazing, but she was in the right place. But she's also been a person to be able to sort of step outside and say, what are we doing? Is this the right thing? Um, how yeah, does that made society? her an important character for me. I mean, you ask why her, you know, right after she does the uh, CRISPR-Cas9 paper in uh, for science in uh, 2012, along with Emmanuel Schrappenchek, she has a nightmare, and somebody wants to talk to her about the technology she's developed. She goes into the room in her nightmare, and it's Adolf Hitler. And she realizes, okay, this tool has societal ramifications that we have to all think about. So she hearkens back to the great Asilomar process, where in the original uh, people doing genetic engineering uh, met at the conference center in the Asilomar and said, what rules of the road are we going to do? And it was Paul Berg and David Baltimore. So she calls Paul Berg and David Baltimore, and she starts another process uh, of saying, what type of uh, guidelines are we going to have for this new technology? And I think that she went through a moral thinking process and her thinking evolved. So she became more and more open to the use of CRISPR. At first, you recoil and you say, well, we shouldn't be editing our genomes. You know, that's messing with Mother Nature. Uh, I think the coronavirus said, well, you know, we, we, we have to find ways sometimes to uh, deal with Mother Nature. And so now it becomes what should we use gene editing for and where should we draw certain lines? And so I watch her in the book and I narrate her in the book, along with many other people, including David Baltimore, as they watch uh, the Chinese, uh, you know, scientists, He Zhuangqi, who did a uh, editing of embryos uh, to create two twin girls that were had designer genomes uh, and say, all right, where are we going to go with this? Because I think it's it's for your listeners and people who care about this podcast to help figure it out. And it's also for regular, ordinary folks who are going to have to say, I have to understand this technology because it's one of the most consequential policy decisions we're going to make in the next two or three decades. Yeah, I I th- I'm, I think there's agreement. And you st- I think you also in the book kind of go back and forth on this human germline 
uh, mm-hmm. genetic engineering question and end up like the protagonist of your book, leaning towards like, well, the experimentation must go on, we must press forward, because there, there could be uses that are too valuable to turn back from. Is that is that unfair paraphrase? That's that's how I read. No, I think that on the one hand, you have scientists who want an a moratorium that there'll be no more research at all into germline editing, anything that would involve reproductive cells and inheritable edit. I think where Jennifer Doudna and other people are is to use a phrase that David Baltimore used, a prudent path forward where you do not now allow it to be used in human embryos, but you allow the research to continue. And you say in the long run, we're going to try to limit this to things that are medically necessary, which is a very, very narrow uh, set of uh, cases. I mean, there are certain types of Huntington disease where both parents have the gene and a few things like that. But I think it's a long while before yeah, we're no, really going to have to cross the germline. If, if you follow the rules that have been set forth by NAS and other <laughs> groups that have looked at this, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's a narrow path to get there, which we may never get to, and, and it's, it's, it's not a lot of things. Uh, but of course, it's, it's hard to control how things get used. But I, I wanted to hone in on a little bit on this question, which, which everybody says is that we need to involve people who aren't scientists in this decision. This isn't, I don't even think the scientists want to be responsible for this decision. It's too much. Like, they would rather James not. Watson once said to a British parliamentary group, if scientists don't play God, who will? And I think that was, you know, typical of many of his statements designed to provoke, uh, although less controversial than those more recent statements, alas. Uh, but uh, I think there's should be a view that all of society should appreciate, should celebrate but also understand the basics of what we're talking about because it will be a policy decision. And uh, sometimes people don't understand things and they try to stop them. They may become anti-vaxxers or they may be against GMOs, say. Now, that's fine to be against GMOs, but it's at least helpful if you're going to be against GMOs to know what a genetically modified organism is. And if you're going to be against gene editing, it's kind of helpful to know what a gene is. So I want to help bring both scientists and lay readers along in this thinking process. James Watson felt like the human embodiment in this book of the ups and downs of, you know, science like itself, like this, you know, sort of that you couldn't untangle um, because he was an inspiration, his book *The Double Helix* was an inspiration for both Jennifer Doudna and for you. Um, that you mentioned <laughs> that you you couldn't in- disentangle the good and the bad. It's know? sometimes like you look at genes, and uh, the Chinese scientist edits out uh, the gene in the embryos that he designs uh, that uh, creates a receptor for HIV. And yet you do something like that and you're messing with some things like uh, being able to be resistant to malaria, say, or West Nile disease. A lot of things are interconnected. And in some ways, the weirdness of our personalities has a lot of interconnected traits. 
I don't excuse anything that uh, James Watson has done recently in terms of the comments that I feel were, you know, that were very racist. But it is so interwoven in a weird personality uh, that I have to treat him. And so does Jennifer Dowd. I mean, we go talk to him at one point, uh, have to treat him as a whole personality with all of its complexities and be able to be you know, uh, repelled by some of it, but also understand what it was uh, that caused him and Francis Crick to be insightful and also, for that matter, to use in an unauthorized way the images of Rosalind Franklin. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And it it's like the dilemma we have over something like CRISPR, which is that you can't actually pick and choose the good pieces and not get the bad pieces. Well, you know what? I've never exactly thought of it that way. And that's exactly right, Laura, which is within the whole concept of CRISPR are many interwoven strands. And you can't just say, okay, we'll pick these good ones, but not allow these bad ones. They tend to get interwoven at times. I mean, even if you're going to use CRISPR genetic editing, say, to uh, fight off Alzheimer's or memory problems, you also can use it to enhance memory. And this is not just in the germline. There'll probably be ways, you know, where they've already used CRISPR to uh, cure uh, Victoria Gray of sickle cell anemia down in uh, Mississippi uh, using, you know, stem cell editing and likewise blindness and is being worked on with cancer. So it is, you have to understand it's an interwoven uh, system and we have to deploy it properly. I mean, it falls into the other things I've written about. I mean, I write about digital technology. Well, Facebook is a complex thing these days both for good and for bad. Yes, absolutely. I I sort of wanted to ask you uh, about those comparisons because um, there is this democratizing quality of CRISPR uh, because it makes something that was laborious and expensive quick and cheap. And that's a very powerful thing, right? Like I go back and forth to say, is it more like the printing press or the transition from... Um, to, from print to digital, both of those incredibly powerful things that just made something we could already do quicker and cheaper. Yeah, it's a little bit like, uh, in some ways, publishing, which I can remember writing my first book, you know, on a typewriter. And then, uh, you know, the digital tools you have make it quicker and easier. But the moral implications when it comes to uh, cut and pasting DNA in our, you know, species is, of course, in a different quantum orbit than cutting and pasting that we do when we publish things. But going, going to a digital world is what brought us Facebook, right? And, right. And that was initially supposed to be, you know, and it was true. Like, there's this way in which it's true. This, there's a, there's a demo, democratizing effect of everybody having access to communication and everybody having access to information. Um, in my it, book, there's but a biohacker. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, there's a biohacker. You remember Josiah Zayner? And uh, I have him both as a character, as a little bit like Puck in, in Midsummer Night's Dream, who pops up every now playing the very wise fool and saying, what fools these mortals be. But he's also somebody who shows 
that you can do this in your garage lab if you have some training in biology that CRISPR gene editing is something unlike, say, making a nuclear bomb, that you, you know, an average uh, graduate student in biology will be able to do. So this makes the moral implications a little bit more challenging, and it makes it more democratizing, which is the point that you made, Laura. Yeah, uh, which is both exciting and scary in this. I have a game I play with my students called Cool or Creepy, where I tell them about something that happened in the world of genetics. The, the best, cooler, creepy I can explain is uh, the Chinese editing cows to make their milk more like human breast milk because it's better for babies. And then they have to decide if they think it's cool or creepy. And, and the, the joke of the game is that everything is both. Right. And you can't have a binary divide, uh, whether it's about a complex personality, as we said, of James Watson, or a binary view on CRISPR. And that's one of the problems we face in our society today uh, with the polarization, the politicization, and for that matter, social media. You're supposed to have a yes or no binary view of everything that comes along. And so people like myself who try to write a narrative tale with a mix of characters from biohackers to Nobel Prize winners, and saying, here's how the narrative is going, uh, we're trying to say there's not a one, there's not a 140-character tweet that gives you the answer to all of these things. So, yeah, so speaking of Nobel Prize winners, I was very excited when Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier won the Nobel Prize, even though I think it's a story of sort of with with inevitable implications and communal effort and all that, but and unabashedly, a part of that was about sort of girl power, which, which there was a lot of discussion of around the Nobel, two women winning the prize for chemistry. Was that aspect of uh, choosing to focus on one of the women scientists there um, a part of your decision to go with Jennifer? Not really. I had met Jennifer Doudna before I embarked on this book, and I wanted to do a book about uh, the, you know, the revolution coming in the life sciences. And she had uh, spoken at the Aspen Institute, and I had become fascinated with, you know, how RNA was going to be such a great tool. Uh, but it is helpful because once I started uh, talking to her and researching her background. You know, we discovered, as you said, uh, that we both read the double helix when we were in sixth grade and got excited by it. But she got told by her school guidance counselor, girls don't become scientists. And uh, so she had that headwind, even when she went to Pomona College and was trying to major in chemistry. You know, for a while, she thought, well, maybe she should switch to French because, you know, there wasn't an encouragement for women to become scientists at that point. And, you know, she had uh, not had a whole lot of role models. And she even saw what happened to Rosalind Franklin, who doesn't get enough credit uh, in the story about the structure of DNA. Uh, so it was, to me, an upside of it when I was writing about this, that this would give a role model. And I would hope maybe some people would take this book and put it on the bed of one of their kids and maybe one of their daughters, uh, just the way Jennifer's dad put a 
book on her bad when she was in school and say, here's a role model, because I think we all want to be inspiring the next generation uh, about the nobility of science and the beauty of research. And now that we're moving out of the digital age where we're trying to convince our kids to learn how to digitally code, we'd say, okay, you got to do that. But it's also cool to understand the code of life. So yes, it's to me, it's part of the tale that she was a woman. And indeed, when a lot of the alpha males in the late 1990s were part of the Human Genome Project, it was mainly males. It was, you know, Francis Collins and Eric Lander and Craig Venter and, you know, so many other people. And women like uh, Jennifer, uh, and that matter, Emmanuel, focused on RNA, which is actually the molecule that goes out and does the work in the cell. And so all of that did have a narrative that talked about uh, the role of women in science, which has been underappreciated. So it was not why I did the book, but as I was doing the book, I became more and more conscious of it, especially when I looked at the cast of characters. I mean, we talked about, you know, Francisco Mojico and Fang Zhang, but in Jennifer's case, it involves Jillian Banfield, you know, this wonderful scientist at Berkeley, and Emmanuel Charpentier, who she meets in Puerto Rico, who, you know, uh, becomes her research partner. So it does have a lot of heroes who are women. Uh, yes, and and perhaps the collaborative, oh, I don't want to get too far into stereotyping. I'm going to not I'm going to let you go there, Laura, because <laughs> I don't do that in the book. Yeah, I'm not going to say it. I will say this. I will ask I've you run this. organizations and I try to impress upon people <laughs> that collaboration is the soul of creativity. Uh, but you're right in the sense that this narrative in The Code Breaker is about not just Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel being great scientists uh, and driven and persistent and competitive and stubborn, but also, especially in Jennifer's case, she's a team builder. I mean, she's created a great team at the Innovative Genomics Institute, and she has created great teams to wrestle with the moral implications of science. So I don't necessarily try to gender stereotype, but I do celebrate the collaborative uh, instinct that seems to be driving Jennifer Doudna. And the interesting thing to me is that collaboration and competitiveness sometimes get woven together. As we say, everything's interwoven. Uh, and so there was a great competitiveness in fighting for the patents over the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing tool. However, when they turned their attention to the coronavirus fight, the orbit around Fong Zhang and the orbit around Jennifer Doudna printed things in open source journals and didn't try to assert intellectual property rights and said people could use them however they wanted in the fight against coronavirus. So that collaboration strand is brought out in a good way uh, when coronavirus pandemic strikes. I actually um, feel like maybe it's a story that hasn't gotten enough attention, how amazing the pivot to studying the coronavirus was uh, across all of the relevant scientific disciplines. I'm glad you said that because I kind of uh, decided to make the last quarter of my book the pivot because uh, it made this so uh, relevant 
where you say, okay, we've discovered all these things that we can do with molecules. Molecules are the new microchip. And now we're going to have to program them to fight this virus for us. I was talking to somebody the other day who was unnerved by the vaccine because she said it was developed so fast and it was the, the well, I mean, the, the two first vaccines or the first and second of their kind using RNA. And um, she said, like, well, how could it be okay if this happened so fast? And I'm like, you don't understand the, these techniques and these, these study of these molecules. They were like waiting in the wings, you know? They were like waiting in the wings for their chance. Everything was just we the perfect so time. We were so lucky. Yeah. Uh, we were so lucky. I was in the Pfizer trial starting last July, the clinical trial, because I was so fascinated that, and once again, uh, messenger RNA technology, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania, a lot of basic research, and then gets translated in the past 10 years into, all right, we can now use messenger RNA and get it into human cells. And people like Nubara Fayan then create Moderna and uh, BioNTech gets created in Germany. Uh, so you're right. This wasn't some eight-month sprint. It was a 10-year run that ended with an eight-month dash to a finish line for a vaccine. And so the minute they started that clinical trial, I got in on July 31st to the Pfizer trial, and I think it may have been the first day they opened it up for the trial. Am I allowed to ask if you're unblinded, or is that an important uh, question? No, I, well, it is an ethical question because I stayed blinded. Uh, it being July 31st, you can uh, you know do the math. By January, I had gone through all the blood tests, and so I was ready to do the crossover, which they were doing. Uh, and I stayed in the trial. I ended up having had the placebo, but because they crossed me over, I ended up getting the real vaccine and is now, you know, I've had my double vaccines. So, uh, Mom. I'm a bit lucky, although I'm in the age category too, alas. So, uh, I made sure I wasn't jumping the queue or unblinding myself, uh, too unnecessarily. That's a very ethical approach. I, I, I wouldn't think... Um, I just I, knew somebody would ask me someday on a podcast. This is the vaccine-enforcing podcast. Everyone that you talk about in the book, you show some affection for. There's nobody that, that's a, a villain in this, in this story, although there's a lot of very competitive and sometimes fierce races and sometimes anger between various right. protagonists. There's nobody from your point of view that you treat as a villain. If there was anyone who came close, maybe steps up on the line, be Eric Lander in his competitive zeal, although you specify, I'm going to put that up, that you like him personally and that you enjoyed his company and so on. So... Eric Landers, and he went into the Biden cabinet and they asked Michael Eisen about it. And Michael Eisen, a professor at Berkeley, who's been incredibly critical of him for some of what he's done in his competitive zeal to sort of advocate for his scientists and his institute, was like, well, I, I like to see that there in the White House. Like, Absolutely. I totally agree with Michael Eisen. And I've always liked Eric Lander. I've known him for many years. And he, I think, comes across very well in the book because even though he is... Uh, very competitive, and even though he writes this article called Heroes of CRISPR that puts a spin on it, in my that has a lot has the facts right, but has a lot of spin that I think you know puts 
the Broad Institute and the center of the discovery of CRISPR uh, at the expense of Jennifer Doudna and some uh, Emmanuel Scharpenscher. It's still a very well-reported, absolutely brilliant piece. And the competitiveness, the drive of Eric Lander is what moves science forward. And, uh, you know, he has a great humor to it. And that gives him a charisma that makes him a magnet for talent. I do not think you build the Broad Institute from scratch the way he did into the best place doing translational medicine out of genetic basic research. Uh, You don't build that out of scratch by being, you know, a, uh, a teddy bear. You have to be driven. And I'm glad you say in the book, he comes across, I hope, uh, with quite a bit of affection as well as an occasional bit of amusement at his competitive streak. Yeah, uh, no, and tons of respect. And I mean, I have, I think I have, a, maybe I have a little more tolerance for the ego, even even in white men today than, it's a, <laughs> than you're supposed to, because nothing happens without ego. Like nothing, yeah, and it's if, not if you just can back it up with talent and drive and determination and, 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 and what you're fighting for is the right thing, nothing happens without it. Yeah, I think he's driven. I, I don't think he's egotistical, although I'll get a lot of blowback for having said that. <laughs> I don't think tell he's competitive and driven, but he's, you know, driven to build teams and teams that do great things. Uh, and yeah, I, I look at some people and they may be the sweetest people in the world, but if they don't have that competitive drive, they're never going to be, uh, somebody who creates a Broad Institute and they're not going to be good as a chief science advisor to the president of the United States because they're going to, uh, not drive for the right things. The thing about Eric is he's driven, but he's driven for the right things. I mean, I know a lot of people are kind of driven and they're driven for their own money. You know, they're driven for their own ego or to cash in on things. If you're driven to do basic science and turn it into medical advances, uh, more power to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... There's also that element of, you know, nobody likes the enforcer on the other guy's team and everybody likes it when he's playing for your team, you know, like everybody likes the guy with a little bit of sharp elbows when he's on your side. And I do think that the team he built at the Broad, and for that matter, the Harvard-MIT crowd there, I hope they get the Nobel Prize uh, probably in medicine at some point <clears throat> because George Church, Fong Zhang, and for that matter, David Liu and others who have created CRISPR tools that actually can edit in the human cells to cure diseases and are now doing so, that, you know, CRISPR deserves at least two Nobel Prizes. Were you surprised there wasn't a third person on the the Nobel? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, any committee that gets a choice of picking three and only picks two, uh, it was a bit of a surprise. You know, it was interesting. Jennifer Doudna, that early morning when it was announced early morning American time uh, was actually asleep in a motel in Palo Alto where she had gone for a conference and her phone was on vibrate and she wasn't even focused on it or at least she misses the first phone call she gets from Stockholm. I was, you know, hoping that CRISPR would win. I thought it was soon, you know, 
poor, you know, so Roger Penrose also got a Nobel Prize that year in physics, and his discovery was 50 years ago. So usually it takes more than eight years to win the Nobel Prize for a discovery. But I got up in my time in New Orleans, 4 a.m., so I could watch the live stream from Stockholm just to see if it was going to be awarded to CRISPR. And I was thrilled that it was. And a little surprised that they didn't add the third, which probably could have been Fong Zhang. But the problem is it could have also been Francisco Mojico. It could have been uh, George Church. It could have been, uh, you know, quite a few other people. And so maybe it was hard uh, if you're going to give it to the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9 as a gene editing tool. You clearly have to do Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. And then the third slot is a little bit harder to designate. Yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. Can we talk for a minute about George Church? Isn't he one of the most interesting human beings? Oh, man. He is a uh, gentleman <clears throat> disguised as a madman. Uh, and he it's, it's such a successful, you know, role that he plays of mad scientist that as uh, Shakespeare teaches us in, you know, Henry the Fourth, we become the mask we wear. And so it's hard to know uh, this gentle giant uh, on the one hand and mad scientist on the other who's trying to revive the woolly mammoth. And you look at him and you say, maybe it's out of a sense of kinship that he wants <laughs> to revive the woolly mammoth. You know, he, uh, in fact, in front of me, I have a book, you know, his book, and a book called, you know, Woolly, which is a great book about him. But he's a great biography to be done. I was actually just thinking that it's amazing that nobody's written a biography of, of George Church because there's just so much. And, and the thing is, he says so many things, some of which make people incredibly uncomfortable, but nobody doesn't like him and nobody doesn't respect <laughs> him. He just oh, he's of... so likable. But you're right. He pushes the envelope in my book. I talk about drawing the line we talked about early in this podcast about doing germline editing for enhancements. Like, should we allow rich people to buy, you know, to, talking a few decades from now to buy, you know, better genes for their children so they can be taller or, blind, uh, you know, or blue eyed if they want or have better memory or maybe muscle mass or maybe even, you know, general intelligence in some ways you could. Uh, perhaps a few decades from now, tweak a bit uh, with gene editing, even though I think it would be dangerous. And everybody says that's horrible. We should never use it for enhancements. And George Church just looks at me and says, excuse me, why would it be bad for parents to say, I want my kid to be, you know, a little stronger and uh, I want him to be uh, or her to be, you know, this eye color. And I want to add a few IQ points. What's the moral problem with that? I, I think I, I think the thing is about George is that almost everybody else in this field, the, the, you, you propose something and their first thought is like, wait, what could go wrong? Or, 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 or hold on. Bringing back but but George is a purely wrong. why not person. He's a purely why not person. It's not that he's not open to be told why not, like because he welcomes dialogue, I think, which I think is why everybody likes him. But purely anything you said to him, we could do this. He'd be like, why not, is his first question. Absolutely, and that's what allows him to be a great scientist. He's also very literal. 
I asked him at one point about uh, Jennifer Doudna having made a particular decision that she made, uh, basically pulling out of uh, the company that she and George and Feng Jiang created uh, after the patent battle. She, you know, stalks away from that company. I said, was it really necessary for Jennifer to do that? He said, no, it wasn't necessary. Nothing is necessary. Breathing isn't necessary. If you decide you don't want to breathe, you can do it. It's not necessary. And it was like the most literal pushback of me saying, was it, you know, do you think it was necessary for Jennifer to pull out of the company? (laughs) So now we find out that George could also have been an excellent lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Or I don't know, either a Jesuitical or Talmudic scholar. Anything. That's that's Or a great scientist, which is what he is. Which he is, which is what, which is what he is. Yeah. Well, that's great. I have one last question for you because I know we're running out of time, but. I, I felt during the book that there were moments where you almost regretted that you didn't write about Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier as a team. You seemed um, like you could have gone in that direction as well. Uh, I was charmed. You know, I went over to Berlin, spent time with her, went to her lab. Um, and of course, uh, she's charmant, to use the French word. Uh, and, uh, but she is much more of sort of a loner, peripatetic, moving from country to country, lab to lab. And so I think she's an important character who weaves into the book, but she's not a sustaining character for a narrator. So she is the co-star of this book, and so is Fong Zhang in ways. But when you want the narrative from, you know, a young uh, lanky, tall, blonde, young girl growing up feeling like an outsider in Ilo, Hawaii among, you know, Polynesian students and being told she can't do science to somebody who says, I'm going to be like Rosalind Franklin and figure out the structure of some of these RNA molecules and then applies that and then goes into the moral and unethical issues. Jennifer Doudna, her life, her personality is the only thread that can sort of sustain that entire narrative, which is, I was very open-minded when I started the research. I didn't know whether, I mean, I've written books, including The Innovators, that have no central character, but Jennifer became an obvious central character. And it's in some ways the best way to show a journey of discovery. And that's what I want all my books to be. Not a, here's a book telling you about something, but here's a book in which we go hand in hand on a journey of discovery. And so that often helps to have a companion, meaning your main narrative character. And you can't do better than Jennifer Doudna. I mean, everybody I've written about, including old Ben Franklin and Einstein and certainly Steve Jobs, they've all been pretty rough characters, even Ada Lovelace. Uh, The only problem I had with Jennifer Doudna she doesn't really have a dark side or a bad side to her. Uh, And, you know, so she's quite a pristine hero in this book. Lovely. That's great. And that does, uh, I'm, that does feel like a a wrapping up of the book, which really I had thought of her life as being sort of the spine of it because it goes, goes out in so many directions, but you're right. It's, 
It's really that she's uh, you're 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 on a journey with her, and uh, all of it unfolds around you, in a in a most remarkable way. So, thank you so much for, Laura, for joining me. You're a great great podcaster. I'm used to people saying, you know, what is a gene or something. So <laughs> it's great to talk to an audience like yours. <laughs> uh, well, we are we are mutually grateful that you came to talk to us. Uh, so I wouldn't have missed it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, Go to the website, BeagleLanded.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Laura Hersher, all that stuff. Be safe out there, everybody. Thank you.